Hello and welcome to Reading Spanish, a podcast in which we read and discuss passages from Spanish language literature. I'm your host, Nick Barr, and this is episode five. Today we'll be reading chapter 68 from the book Hopscotch, or Rajuela, written by Julio Cortázar. Um, chapter 68 is a very short passage, so we'll read it in its entirety, and it's sort of a standalone prose poem. Um, I haven't read all of Hopscotch. I started it many years ago um, and abandoned it, not because it wasn't great, but because I lost the book. Um, it's definitely on my to-read list. So we're just going to go ahead and study this chapter as sort of a standalone piece, um, not really paying attention to the context, uh, which is fine, and I think you'll see why shortly. So I'm going to go ahead and launch right into it. Before I do, um, I should warn you that it's a very difficult passage to read um, for reasons that will become clear. Um, so thank you in advance for your patience. Apenas él le amalaba el noema, a ella se le agolpaba el clemiso, y caían en hidromurias, en salvajes ambonios, en sustelos exasperantes. Cada vez que él procuraba relamar las incopelusas, se enredaba en un grimado quejumbroso, y tenía que involucionarse de cara al nóvalo, sintiendo como poco a poco las arnillas se espejunaban, se iban apeltronando, reduplimiendo, hasta quedar tendido como el trimalciato de erromanina al que se le han dejado caer unas filulas de cariaconcia. Y, sin embargo, era apenas al principio, porque en un momento dado, ella se torulaba los urgalios, consintiendo en que él aproximara suavemente su orfelunios. Apenas se entreplumaban, algo como un ulucorio los encrestoriaba, los extrayuxtaba y paramovía, de pronto era clinón, la estepfuroso convocante de las matricas, la jade ollante en boca pluvia del orgumio, los esproemios del merpasmo, en un sobrio mítica agopausa. Evoé, evoé. Voposados en la cresta del murelio, se sentían barparamar, perlinos y marulos. Temblaba el troc, se vencían las marioplumas, y todo, so y todo se resolviraba en un profundo pínice, en yolamas de argo tendidas gasas, en carinas casi crueles, que los ordenaban hasta el límite de las gunfias. All right, um, so before we discuss, I'm just going to read you the English translation. Um, this isn't mine. This is the translation done by uh, Gregory Rabassa uh, as part of the 1966 translation of Hopscotch. As soon as he began to amylate the noem, the Clemise began to smother her, and they fell into hydromeries, into savage ambonies, into exasperating sustales. Each time that he tried to relimate the heron copse, he became entangled in a whining grimmet and had to face up to involving the novelisk, feeling how, little by little, the arnies would spajoon, were becoming peltronated, redoblated, re redoblated, until they were stretched out like the ergomenine tremalciate, which drops a few filiers of karyakons. And it was still only the beginning, because right away she tortled her herguels, allowing him gently to bring up his orphelines. No sooner had they co-feathered than something like a unicorn encrested them, extrajuxted them, 
and paramove them. Suddenly it was the Clinon, the Sterferous Convulcan of Matarix, the Slobdiggering Ramoth of the Orgumian, the Sproems of the Merpasm, and one superhumidic Algopas. Evoe, Evoe! While posited on the crest of a muralium, they felt themselves being balkarammed, perline and merryless. The trock was trembling, the meripulums were overcome, and everything became resolverated into a profound pinex, into nylames of argutentic gauzes, into almost cruel corinears, which were ordopained them to the limit of the gumfies. So um, that translation doesn't really do it for me, um, but uh, far be it for me to offer a better translation at this point. It's definitely on my to-do list. Um, I just want to kind of talk a little bit about what's going on here. Um, so, I mean, it's obviously a sex scene, right? This is obviously sort of an erotic um, passage, but it's not really erotically written, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, for me, anyway, kind of the themes or the evocations of of the text uh, were of, of chemistry, metallurgy, you know, of the ocean and the sea, um, and probably above all of like flower sex. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to bring up just like parts of the flower after I read this. Um, and so here's just some of, of plant morphology. You've got the peduncle, that's the stalk of a flower, receptacle, um, the sepal, that's the outer parts of the flower um, that enclose a bud. You've got the petal, obviously. You've got the stamen. Um, you've got the anther, that's the part of the stamen where pollen is produced. The pistil, um, the pistil is what produces the ovules. Um, you've got the stigma, that's where pollen germinates. And you've got the ovary, um, where ovules are produced. Um, so, you know, reading those words, um, for me, kind of put me in the same territory of Cortázar here when he's talking about, um, you know, incopelusas and filulas and cariaconcia, urgalios. There's sort of this taxonomy, a Latinate kind of stiff scientific approach, which is kind of interesting for erotica, right? It's erotica, but it's not erotically written. You're not getting a lot of lulalas, um, I should bring up what's that first famous sentence from, uh, let's, let's just bring it up real quick, of Nabokov. Um, Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul, Lolita, the tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth. Right, so like there you've got kind of um, erotica that's, phonetically erotic there's no there's no sexy sounds here in fact we kind of stumble over um the reading uh, i mean even in english it was very difficult for me to get through um so i thought that's sort of interesting um you know i guess the bigger question is why invent a language for a sex scene at all and one answer to that i guess is that you know sex or at least really good sex uh, is maybe extralingual or out outside of language. Um, I mean, that's kind of one of the big foundations of poetry, right, is uh, erotic poetry struggling to, to give words to the feelings that we experience um, and kind of provide 
shitty metaphors and apologize for those shitty metaphors. Um, but that's the closest we can get. Um, but you know, I don't think that's completely what Cortázar is doing here. Instead, I think he's trying to kind of like position the sex scene, um, in an almost sort of extra human perspective, right? In the same way we might describe the way that flowers breed. I think he's trying to describe the way that these two humans come together. Uh, I mean, literally come together. Um, every time he tried to relamin the encopulus, he found himself tangled in a plaintive grimace and had to envelop himself to face the new veil. Um, that was my one of my um, passages here. Feeling little by little how their armicles murinated, how they kept putating, reduplimating until they were laid out like the trimal cave of Ergomenine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic passage. Uh, it's really, really interesting. And I guess um, in a future episode, I'll, I'll put forward my, my attempt at translation. Um, but in general, as I thought about how one would go about even translating something like this, how do you translate gibberish, right? I guess there's two almost opposite approaches. Um, you, can, you can closely examine each word for its component parts, whether, you know, syntax or semantics, um, and try to translate it that way. So, you know, an example of, um, you know, one is maybe superhumidic um, for sobre umitica, right? Sobre umitica, it, it looks very parsable. So, we're tempted just to call that superhumidic, um, and for the most part, those are the majority of Rabasa's translations. Somewhat to his detriment, I think, because um, I don't know. I don't know. I found I found a lot of his words to look obviously translated, right? And so you know, he's got something like um peltronated, redoublated until they were stretched out like the ergomanine trimalciate. Like that's that's almost too hard in English. It looks it doesn't look like it's English, right? And then sometimes he gets a little bit more poetic. So for instance, he'll have a word, the slob diggering rainmouth of the orgumian. So slobber digging slobber digging rainmouth. Um there he's taking a little bit of liberty. Um let me try to find the, the what that matches to slobber digging rainmouth um so for instance rainmouth is him saying that's his that's his translation of uh emboca pluvia and it makes sense boca mouth emboca pluvia luvia juvia mouth rain i mean they exist in there and then uh so that would mean the way he translated um Slobber digging. Slobber digging then is a translation of Hale Ojante, um, which again, I think there he's sort of trying to say, okay, well, maybe Hayar is to pant, Ojar is to tread. Um, slobber digging, sure, I guess. So, you know, but there you've just got two completely opposite approaches, right? One is sobre humitica, um, super humidic. Or maybe even a better example is something like ergomanine. So that's ergomanina. He just kind of threw up his hands and said, okay, sure, ergomanine. Whereas Hade Ojante, somehow he felt inspired to, to parse that and turn it into um, slobber digging. 
And so I think for a translator, you're gonna that's the trend that's that's the challenge, right? Is whether to make the word familiar. Um, slobber digging is slobber digging rainmouth is extremely kind of evocative phrase for us, whereas herguels, ergomanine, tremalciate, um, those words are sort of are the sorts of things where we just say, okay, that's science, that's some sort of taxonomy. Um, it's not going to mean anything to us, and and probably the best translation is a mix of both because I don't think, I don't think, ergomanine means anything to us, but I'm, I don't really necessarily think ergomanina means much to a Spanish speaker either, and so that's where I think this translation becomes so difficult is you have to decide um, when you want to evoke something and when you want to um, deliberately kind of obfuscate meaning. Um, you know, a final thought on this passage that is interesting is at sometimes um, Cortázar is using a word that's obscure but actually has meaning and so it starts with apenas el de amalaba el noema and amalaba looks actually like a word amalar it's not um, and so you know my first instinct was to look up amalar it's not a word okay now what am I left with amylate that's what um, Rabasa translated it to um, so amylate is sort of the the first naive thought but then maybe I want to dig deeper into Okay, amalar, well, amar, lavar, um, amalgam, right? What are the roots here? Um, you can kind of fall into a rabbit hole. Um, but then, le amalaba el noema. Well, it turns out that noema actually is a word. In English, it's still no, noema. Um, it's, it's Greek. And there is a philosopher, I think his name is Russert. Oh, I should look it up. It's, uh, no, not Russert, Husserl. Edmund Husserl used noema as a technical term in phenomenology to stand for the object or content of a thought, judgment, or perception. Um, so, you know, there's sort of these uh, Easter eggs, if you will, where you're tempted to say, oh, noema is another kind of bullshit word that Cortázar is using, but in fact, it actually has meaning. Now, whether or not um, Cortázar knew about noema in philosophy, I don't know. I mean, he didn't have Wikipedia, so it wasn't like he could just punch it in. Um, but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and assume he, he knew what he was doing. And then there actually is, there's more proof for this because that sort of, um, orgasmic call, eboe, eboe is, um, is another Greek term. Um, I think the most common spelling for it is E-U-O-I, is that right? Um, I came across this word recently because it's a popular Scrabble word, as you can imagine. Um, yeah, it's E-U-O-I, um. Coming from the uh, from the from the Greek, and the definition is a cry of impassioned rapture in ancient Bacchic revels. Um, so there you got there you go. It's sort of another Easter egg, um, and I, it kind of goes back to you know we were talking about why why make up a language for sex. There's a little bit more um, of the of the orgiastic there, where it's sort of like. Um, you know, in the way that good sex might make you babble, um, there's sort of an element of the babbling here. But again, I, I, what I do think is interesting is it's it's definitely not babble. Um, there there might be a little bit of babble in there, but for the most part, it has this sort of scientific confidence, this precision um, that, for me, more than anything else, I associate with with uh, yeah a, a, a botanist. You know, someone describing the way. Um, flowers pollinate. Um, anyway, we're going to leave off 
um, for now, but I definitely will revisit this passage in a future episode, um, hopefully with a translation of my own and um, a justification for it. Thanks for listening.